Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 7, Episode 11, The Reign of the Mongols. When Genghis Khan's death was announced, the leaders of neighboring nations probably breathed a sigh of relief. Surely now the Mongols would start fighting amongst themselves once more and things would start going back to normal. As I mentioned in the previous episode, however, the strength of the Mongol Empire was not contained solely in the charisma and battlefield expertise of its great Khan. While I focused on the battles, campaigns, and conquests in the previous episode, it's worthwhile to also recount the administrative and legal systems which are credited to Genghis Khan. The Mongol Code of Law, which is believed to have evolved from wartime decrees, was called the Yasa. Genghis Khan consulted with his stepbrother, whom he made a high judge, to formulate the Yasa Code, and later appointed his son Chagatai over its enforcement. The primary goal of the Yasa was to ensure absolute obedience to the Khan. It also encouraged the unification of the various groups which composed the Mongols by placing them all under a universal law, and punishments for breaking this code were generally quite severe. Stealing livestock was outlawed, as well as kidnapping women from other tribes, and obviously defection from the army. The death penalty was employed liberally, even for seemingly minor offenses. The meritocracy which Genghis Khan favored from his earliest days marshalling armies continued throughout his lifetime and beyond. Those who performed well at a task, whether it was charging a weakened enemy line or finding errors in official bookkeeping, could generally expect recognition and promotion, while those who did poorly could expect dismissal and shame. We discussed Tolwi's brief regency in the previous episode, but he was a very important figure in Mongol history. While he stepped aside to let his brother Ogade take charge as the new Khan, he was still a descendant of Genghis Khan and thus enjoyed certain political benefits. The great Khan developed such a reputation as an invincible conqueror and unifier that his descendants enjoyed a level of political privilege far and above that of the average Mongol subject. The children and grandchildren of Jochi, Chagatai, Ogade, and Tolui would later rule over khanates, sultanates, and empires of their own. In 1229, Ogade was made the new Khan of the empire. His older brother Chagatai and his younger brother Tolui supported him, and he proceeded to ensure the support of the other powerful generals and nobles by including them in councils and consulting them when facing policy decisions. Unity suited these powerful leaders of the Mongols, for now, so they were happy to let Ogade take the reins. I mentioned last time that under his rule, the Mongols would extend into the Caucasus, but westward expansion was only part of the goal. The final conquest of the Jin dynasty loomed, and while the Song dynasty was happy to ally with the Mongols in order to see their northern neighbor crushed, the wealthy trade lands of Southeast Asia were far too big a prize to be overlooked forever. At the other end of the empire, a Mongol general named Chormakan was finalizing the conquest of Persia, which the heir to the Khwarazmian Empire had been trying to seize in order to restore his family's power. 
With Persia fully under their control, the Mongol Empire now bordered both the Atlantic Ocean in the east and the Indian Ocean in the west. Using their foothold in Persia, the Mongols could now raid into Syria, Mesopotamia, and Asia Minor. It was one thing to conquer and subjugate all of these different peoples, quite another thing to govern them. It is commonly said that the Mongol Empire was religiously tolerant, and that they did not interfere with the faiths of the people they ruled. While this is broadly true, there were a few incidents in which the Mongol rulers suppressed practices from other faiths which they found distasteful or insulting. The Jews and Muslims living under Mongol authority were targeted for restriction by Genghis Khan himself, who especially disliked their tendency to refuse food which was not kosher or halal. Thus he decreed that the Jews and Muslims no longer had the right to refuse food offered to them regardless of its origin, and that Muslims would not be allowed to slaughter animals in the halal fashion. Jews were also forbidden from practicing circumcision. Most of the Mongols followed some form of Tengri-ism, which centers around the primary god Tengri, whose name literally means blue sky. As I mentioned in the previous episode, however, a significant number of Mongols, both common and noble, had adopted Nestorian Christianity, which still thrived in Central Asia at the time. More important than the religion they belonged to, however, was their overall view of spirituality itself. To most Mongols, religious belief was a deeply personal matter, which was generally none of anyone else's business. As the empire continued to expand, Mongols faced the challenges of administering its distant corners. In Persia, as well as throughout much of West Central Asia, they largely adopted the existing systems of taxation, record-keeping, and resource distribution, but imported bureaucrats belonging to subjugated peoples from the other end of the empire. This ensured that the bureaucrats would focus on their jobs and have almost no opportunity to gather local influence of their own accord. Mongol governors frequently took great pains to integrate themselves into the people they ruled, often adopting the majority religion, learning the language, and taking part in local customs. The armies of Eastern Europe had very little luck against the Mongol forces, and were frequently drawn into traps and then slaughtered using the feigned retreat tactic we discussed in the previous episode. This is not to say that the Mongols never lost when fighting the Europeans, but they often triumphed even when outnumbered. In the East, however, the conquest of the Song dynasty would prove a much more difficult task to accomplish. The Mongol Empire had secured an alliance with the Song dynasty toward the end of their war against the Jin dynasty. The leaders of the Song were trying to avoid going to war against the Jin dynasty until they were certain that they were joining the winning side. You may recall that it was the Jin who pushed the Song out of northern China, so their hesitation was, to a certain extent, justified. If the Jin happened to prevail against the Mongols after such an alliance had been cemented, they would target Song lands in retribution. As a sign of good faith, the Song sent food and other material support to Mongol forces carrying out a siege on the city of Chaizhou in 1234. This city was the final stronghold of the Jin dynasty, and it was breached and sacked by both Mongol and Song armies in February of that year. With the Jin destroyed, the Mongols finalized their conquest over northern China. 
While the Song dynasty was happy to have the Jin removed from their northern border, they had no intention of allowing the Mongols to govern the cities which they still considered rightfully theirs. The leaders of the Song dynasty were playing the long game in supporting the Mongols against the Jin. The Mongol armies were now spread all over the continent, and it didn't seem possible for them to continue prosecuting multiple wars over such vast territory. Seeing what looked like the perfect opportunity, some of the Song generals launched a surprise offensive into northern China, driving Mongol garrisons out as they seized the cities of Kaifeng, Chang'an, and Luoyang, and their surrounding territory. If those city names sound familiar, it's because they were important capital cities of historical Chinese dynasties. The Song understood the importance of optics. Unfortunately for the Song, optics was really the only thing they gained from those seizures. Enduring years of warfare had left most of those formerly thriving urban centers underpopulated, in disrepair, and with weak local economies. What followed was a decades-long struggle between the Mongols and the Song for control over China. The 1230s also marked the beginning of the Mongols' struggle against Korea. The Gorya dynasty had, by this point, been reduced to figureheads while the military apparatus performed the actual governance. The lives of the Korean people had already been disrupted once because of the Mongols back in 1219, when a Khitan army fleeing from the Mongol conquests of Jin Dynasty lands crossed onto the Korean peninsula and proceeded to ravage the countryside and defeat the Gorya army in several engagements. The Mongols eventually came and destroyed the Khitan forces, extracting a hefty tribute from Gorya in the process. In 1225, the Mongols sent an envoy demanding another tribute. This was a typical maneuver of the Mongol Empire, and a full recounting of their history includes many similar incidents. The ambassadors demanded a massive sum from Gorya, with the unmistakable threat of invasion if they refused. As so often happened on other occasions, the rulers of Gorya did not appreciate being threatened and executed the envoys, sending their heads back to the Khan. The Mongol diplomatic corps had an extremely high turnover rate. In 1231, the first invasion began in earnest. As they did frequently, the Mongols started with punitive raids along with smash-and-grab pillaging to soften their opponents before making a real play for mastery over their land. However, the Koreans would prove very difficult foes who altered their tactics and strategies to defeat invading Mongols on more than one occasion. They had great success whenever they managed to force the Mongols to engage in naval combat, which the Koreans excelled in. Although the Mongols would eventually succeed in conquering and subjugating the people of both the Song and the Goryeo dynasties, those conquests would take several decades and successive Khans to complete. The victories and conquests near the western edge of their empire were, by comparison, relatively swift, often taking only a few years to complete. Batu Khan completed the conquest of the Kievan Rus in 1240 and extracted a huge yearly tribute from the Slavic city dwellers, which would crater the Russian economy for a century. The kingdoms of Poland and Hungary mounted brave defenses, but frequently lost battles even when they grossly outnumbered their foes due to Mongol generals' superior battlefield tactics. I mentioned in the previous episode that many Western Europeans who first heard about the Mongols' conquest assumed that this new faction was some variety of Christian because of how often the Mongols conquered Muslim polities. 
By the mid-1200s, however, Pope Alexander VI was trying to organize a crusade against the Mongols, whom Europeans called Tatars. This effort came to nothing, but it certainly demonstrates how effectively the Mongols were striking fear into the hearts of those who heard of their deeds from afar. The Song army actually held its own against the Mongols fairly well. Their command of newer technologies and their previous experience tangling with the Jin dynasty meant a long struggle ahead for the Khans. As often happens with protracted conflicts, this led to large-scale atrocities from both sides, as each tried to intimidate the other into surrender. The Mongols, however, had one very large advantage over the Song. While the Mongol Empire was pretty merciless when prosecuting a war against an enemy state, they tended toward generosity once the war had ended. When they conquered the Jin dynasty, they recruited former Jin soldiers to fight on their behalf and even organized them into armies to fight against the Song. This had the effect of both normalizing their occupations in northern China and introducing the Mongols to new technologies like gunpowder weapons. It would be several centuries yet before gunpowder weapons rose to a place of significance as the powder itself was still of very poor quality compared to today. The Chinese, both north and south, employed a bamboo musket called Huochong, or fire lances. While getting hit with one of its bullets would no doubt cause injury, they were used primarily to spread fear in the enemy, as each shot produced a loud clap and a trail of flame jutting from the barrel. Being made of bamboo, they were generally one-shot weapons, though some had several barrels bound together, allowing for follow-up shots. The 11 and 1200s also saw the development of the first grenades, which were iron or stoneware balls filled with gunpowder and a fuse which could be trimmed to adjust for timing. These were also generally not fatal on their own, but struck fear and confusion into the enemy as well as wounding those nearby. In 1259, Monke Khan died unexpectedly in battle and the Mongol Empire was momentarily thrown into disarray. Eventually, Kublai Khan, Monke's younger brother, would claim the top spot, but not before the empire became permanently splintered. A son of Tolui, Kublai Khan's mother was an Nestorian Christian woman named Sorgagtani Beki, and all four of her sons would serve as Khan of either the Mongol Empire or one of its successor states. Kublai's own younger brother, Arik, attempted to claim the mantle of Khan in 1260, which led to four years of civil war in which Kublai triumphed. In the chaos that ensued, however, the once unified Mongol Empire divided into four different factions. Kublai's faction would retain a certain level of legitimacy as the rightful successor to Genghis Khan's empire, as the other three factions would regularly request his confirmation of their own Khans. Central Asia became the realm of the Chagatai Khanate, so-called because it was ruled by the descendants of Chagatai, Genghis Khan's second son. To their south was the Ilkhanate, ruling most of the Middle East as well as a large portion of Asia Minor and nearly all of Persia. North of the Ilkhanate was a faction whom we call the Golden Horde, which is objectively the coolest possible name for any nation in the history of humanity. Sadly, this was not their official name. While they referred to themselves as the Ulug Ulus, or Great State, it was their neighboring nations who dubbed them the Golden Horde, based on the golden tents in which their army encamped. 
By the 1260s, the Goryeo dynasty of Korea knew that it could not resist the Mongols forever. After repeated invasions, internal political upheavals, attempts at appeasement, and a change in Mongol leadership, the rulers of Korea finally worked out an acceptable agreement. The Mongols would give up trying to annex Korea in exchange for a two-way marriage agreement and King Wongjong's submission of the Goryeo kingdom as a client state of the Mongol Empire. Mongol officials would be stationed throughout the land for administration and tax purposes, and they would also have to accept a limited garrison, but would be allowed to retain their culture. King Wonjong married a Mongol princess and sent one of his own daughters to Kublai Khan as a bride. It became a regular practice of the Goryeo dynasty to produce heirs with wives from the Mongol royal family. In 1271, Kublai Khan officially changed his family name to Dai Yuan Chao, or the Great Yuan Dynasty. With much of China now under his control, he was taking steps to ensure that his Chinese subjects saw him as a traditional emperor and not a barbarian occupier. He enshrined his ancestors in the Confucian custom, posthumously granting his grandfather Genghis Khan the title of Emperor Taizu. With Korea sufficiently pacified, the war against the Song could continue in earnest throughout the 1270s. As the war with the Song dynasty persisted over the course of nearly 45 years, the Mongols continued recruiting specialty troops who possessed skills which their typical soldiers did not. While naval capability had been a source of weakness in the Mongols during previous campaigns, they managed by this point to recruit many naval commanders, most of whom had been living under the Jin dynasty. The final battle against the Song dynasty took place in 1279 and was largely a naval engagement. Led by Han Chinese Admiral Zhang Hongfan, the Yuan fleet utterly crushed the remaining Song loyalists despite being vastly outnumbered. The last emperor of the Song dynasty committed suicide alongside his grand chancellor, both of them reportedly hurling themselves from a cliff. The Yuan dynasty now ruled all of China, Tibet, Manchuria, Mongolia, and, because of their vassal status, Korea. While it's easy to focus on the conquests of the Mongol Empire, it's worthwhile to note some of their more positive accomplishments. Genghis Khan initiated a massive construction project building roads through the Altai Mountains in Central Asia, a project later completed by his son Ogade. This served not only as vital economic infrastructure within the empire, but as a means of communication. The Mongol postal service was called Yam, and it was probably the most efficient mail delivery system in the pre-modern world. Regular relay stations were constructed along its path, allowing for more urgent mail to be delivered quickly. Fresh horses were stabled in these relays, as well as food and shelter for riders who needed to take rest. Under this system, a message could travel as much as 125 miles in a day, or about 200 kilometers. It was such an efficient system that many successor states continued to use the roads and relays, and Tsarist Russia would continue using the Yom well into the 1800s for vital government communication and mail delivery. The security of those roads was paramount, and they were regularly patrolled for bandits. This led to an economic boom for both Asia and Europe as trade goods were able to move more quickly and things like silks became available to more of Western Europe. Marco Polo's family famously journeyed all the way to the court of Kublai Khan using the Silk Road, 
though their journey was an exception rather than the norm. Most merchants would travel a certain distance along the road and buy goods from other merchants who had been traveling the other way. This long ladder of middlemen ensured that many luxury goods remained extremely expensive, but were nonetheless in economic demand. The safety and security of Central and East Asia under Mongol rule is referred to as the Pax Mongolica. However, while it is not fair to only focus on the Mongols' conquests and wars, it is likewise incomplete only to acknowledge the benefits of their rule and not consider the price paid in human lives. It is difficult to know how many people were killed as a result of the Mongol conquests, but the number is without a doubt extremely high. Low estimates admit at least 30 million deaths, but some scholars lean toward a much higher estimate, as much as 57 million. Splitting the difference between these two leaves us with an estimate of 43.5 million, which, if accurate, would make the Mongol conquests responsible for the second largest loss of life due to war in human history. Only World War II can claim more victims. In places where the populations resisted Mongol hegemony, the people were frequently subjected to cruel executions and sometimes outright attempts at genocide. The population of Persia alone, for example, did not recover its pre-Mongol invasion numbers until the 20th century. For good or for ill, the Mongol Empire would continue influencing East Asia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe for many centuries to come. Just as Kublai Khan leaned into Confucianism and Buddhism to gain greater acceptance among the Han Chinese, so also did the leaders of the three other Khanates adopt the majority religion of their subjects, Islam. Branding themselves as Ghazis, basically champions of Islam, the rulers of the Chagatai Khanate, the Il Khanate, and the Golden Horde would sponsor academic pursuits, art, architecture, and science in addition to making war against their neighbors. Kublai Khan also wished to expand the borders of the Yuan dynasty, and he looked to the south and east for new lands to conquer. To the south lay the kingdoms of Dalviet and the confederation of Champa, which are both located in modern-day Vietnam. In an earlier campaign, the Mongol armies had managed to seize the Dalviet capital, but had been recalled to support Kublai Khan's claim against his brother Arik in the 1260s. To the east lay Japan, now ruled by the Kamakura shogunate. In the mid-1260s, Kublai Khan sent letters to the Japanese rulers, requesting that they send tribute as they had done for the Song dynasty. The tone of these letters is very patronly, as Kublai Khan describes his nation's relationship to Goryeo as that of a father to son, and very much implies that Japan should also seek this sort of relationship. Next time, we will discuss the shogunate's response to these thinly veiled threats, and see the consequences that arose from defying the new emperor of China. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.